Hello and welcome to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Holly Spear. I'm Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And today I'm so excited. It is my episode and I'm doing a little Christmas themed episode for you guys. This is the Dover Russville mass murder. So let's hop into it. Ronald Gene Simmons was born in Chicago, Illinois on July 15th, 1940. In 1943, Ronald's father died of a stroke. Ronald was three. Ronald's father remarried within a year to William D. Griffin, who was a civil engineer in the U.S. Army. It was because of Ronald's stepfather's job at the time in the Corps that he moved his family to the capital of Arkansas, Little Rock, which we all know and love. (laughs) When Ronald was 17, he dropped out of school and joined the Navy. In the Navy, he was stationed in Bremerton, Washington, and was also trained in Seattle. It was in Seattle where he met his love, Barbase Rebecca Ula Barre, who went by Becky. The two got married in 1960, and over the next 18 years, the couple would go on to have seven children together. In 1963, Simmons left the Navy. Simmons took a year break from the service, then joined the U.S. Air Force in 1963. Simmons had a successful military career for a total of 20 years. He was awarded the Bronze Star Medal, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for excellent marksmanship. Simmons fought in the Vietnam War. In 1979, while Simmons was a Master Sergeant in the Air Force, he retired. At the time Simmons retired, he was stationed in New Mexico. In a nearby town from the base called Cloudcroft, New Mexico, many citizens had gone on to say that Simmons was pretty well known. He was actually feared in the town. People found him strange. He was never seen without a beer in his hands, and he would spend most of his time in a small, dark room that stank. I don't know who said that, but yeah. So, in 1981, Ronald's son, who's named Ronald Gene Simmons Jr., reported that his father was sexually abusing his 17-year-old daughter, the senior's daughter, so his sister. Her name was Sheila, and Sheila was actually pregnant at the time, and the allegation claimed that Ronald Gene Simmons was the father. This was obviously true, and the daughter had already told some of her friends about it. An investigation ensued, and Simmons ended up fleeing to New Mexico, taking his family with him to avoid the investigation charges. Simmons headed to Arkansas, which had been one of the states that Simmons had lived when his stepfather was in the Army and Simmons was young. After this, Simmons became very obsessed with his privacy. Simmons began making his wife distance herself from her family, and she was not allowed to drive or leave the family home. The children stopped being able to be around their friends. They were not allowed to play any sports or socialize at all. The kids were not even allowed to walk to the school bus. Simmons would drive them and drop them off. In the sexual assault case, the daughter, Sheila, was called to testify by the prosecutor, but she refused to testify against her father. This was before they fled. Sheila finally testified when the court threatened to hold her in contempt. After this, Simmons was charged with incest in 1981. When the officers went to pick him up, obviously he was gone without a trace. There was not much police could do between state lines at this point, other than enter his name into a crime database and wait for him to get into trouble elsewhere, which would alert the police. So Simmons settled in a small town of Ward, Arkansas, when he first fled and moved back to Arkansas. In 2010, the population of Ward was 4,067 people, and Simmons then moved to Dover, Arkansas. Now, Dover is even smaller, and the census reported 2010, there was 1,378 people. Dover is all of 1.8 square miles. That's like the size of my neighborhood. Yeah. 
Holly, I do have something to say. Yes. So, okay. Before the incest part, you were talking about how when they moved back to Arkansas, he started like hiding, you know, more often Mm -hmm. keeping his family inside. They weren't allowed to see people. He was really concerned about safety and others, stuff like that. I just want to go ahead and say before knowing all the bad stuff that this guy potentially has done, that Mm -hmm. is a huge sign of PTSD from war. They tend to protect and stay in their house and, you know, are weary of other people or other things, but that could be a huge mental health crisis right there that obviously wasn't caught back then, you know, and still isn't today. But anyways, that immediately made me think, oh shit, you know, he's- yeah, definitely got some mental health stuff going on. Entirely possible. I think people probably chalked it up to he was trying to get away from the conviction of his daughter and like go hide in Arkansas Hills. But I think mm-hmm. it could be either or both. I mean, he he quit the Navy and that's when he started having all these problems. So obviously there's probably some mental health stuff going on there for sure. Right. For sure. So just some little fun facts about Dover. A lot of Dover is pasture land, poultry, farming, and a lot of logging. Dover is literally in the hills. If you keep driving past Dover to the next town is Booger Hollow, Arkansas. Please read that sign for everyone. The sign, if you keep going, the sign will say you're approaching Booger Hollow, Arkansas, population counting one and a king dog. This is a self-proclaimed hillbilly town. Their theme of this whole town is hillbilly. They have a trading post and this is just like Arkansas. Typical Arkansas. Yeah. So. It's like cosplaying as like wild, wild west. Yeah. Okay. So back to the story. The family moved on a 13 acre track of land, six point miles from Dover. The family began calling their home Mockingbird Hill. The home was two mobile homes that they had joined together to form a mega mobile home. He also had a brick fence that people reported to be 10 foot high. I couldn't find any pictures of this, but that's what people said. So it was there that Sheila, his daughter, had her baby. Sheila named her baby Sylvia. Thankfully, Sheila was one of the oldest of the Simmons children, and she ended up getting married and moving out of her father's compound. The Simmons family did not have a telephone, running water, or indoor plumbing. While living in Dover, Arkansas, Simmons hopped from random jobs. He was a receivable clerk at Woodline Motor Freight, but here there was multiple reports that Simmons had made several inappropriate sexual advances to his co-workers, and he was fired for the inappropriate sexual advances, by the way. And Simmons next worked at Sinclair Mini Mart for a year and then ended up quitting. On December 22nd, Simmons went to the local Walmart, and this is where things turn a little dark. Simmons went to the local Walmart and bought a 22 caliber. Simmons went home and bludgeoned his 26-year-old Ronald Jean Jr. with a hammer and then shot him with a handgun. Then killed his three-year-old granddaughter, Barbara, by strangulation. Then killed his wife, Rebecca. Simmons had made his children dig three cesspits on the property earlier because they had no running water or indoor plumbing. So it was here that Simmons disposed of their bodies. Simmons sat and waited for his other children to return from school. He went and picked them up, took them home, and the children were about to be on their Christmas break. The children arrived home and Simmons told them that he had a gift for each of them that he wanted to give them one at a time and that they would have to wait their turn. So he kind of took them, I guess, away from the others one by one. First, Simmons killed his 17-year-old daughter, Loretta. He strangled her and held her head in rainwater barrel, which is a big water tank that collects and stores rain runoff from rooftops that can be like used for purposes, I guess. 
Next, Simmons killed his son, Eddie, then Marianne, then Becky the same way. All of their bodies were also dumped in the same cesspit. No one was sure what sparked these events, but it was rumored that Simmons' wife, Rebecca, was planning on divorcing him and was saving up her money to do so. So after he killed the children that were home, I guess Simmons just kind of chilled, hung out for four days. The older siblings that had moved out were supposed to come over for the holidays on December 26th. On the 26th, his family arrived for their Christmas celebrations, and Simmons shot and killed his son, Billy, and then Billy's wife. Then he strangled and drowned their 20-month-old son. Next, Simmons moved on to the other family. He shot and killed his oldest daughter, Sheila, and her husband, Dennis. Then he strangled his child that he had with Sheila and his 20-month-old grandson. Then Simmons dragged each of their bodies into the lounge of his home and put them into neat rows. He covered their bodies with coats and tablecloths. The bodies of the two children were wrapped in plastic sheeting and were abandoned in cars at the back of his property, which I was kind of confused about why. Why why put the little kids in the back of the cars when you obviously he had just like laid the rest of his family in rows in the house? Right after this, Simmons drove to a Sears store in the nearby town of Russville. He retrieved the Christmas gifts that he had previously ordered from his family at Sears, which is bizarre. He then went for a drink at a local bar and then returned home and spent the rest of his night watching TV and drinking. Then he kept the party going into the next day where he spent the day day drinking and just sitting around watching TV. On December 28th, Simmons drove back into Russville and went to Walmart where he purchased another gun. Simmons was going on a killing spree now after taking out his entire family and was about to take out as many people he disliked as he could. His first stop was a law firm in town. He was on his way to kill the secretary at the firm named Kathy Cribbins Kendrick. Simmons had been attracted to Kathy, and he had made a move on her previously, but she had rejected him. Simmons walked into the law office and shot and killed Kathy. Then Simmons headed to kill Russell Rusty Taylor, who owned an oil company, and the Sinclair Mini Mart, where Simmons had previously worked and had resigned. Simmons walked into the company office and shot and killed Russell, and then shot and killed another person in the building named James David Chaffin, who was a complete stranger to Simmons. Then Simmons shot another employee at the office, but the bullet missed. Simmons then got into his car and drove to the Sinclair Mini Mart where he used to work, and he shot and wounded two more people. Next, he headed to Woodline Motor Freight Company. Simmons shot and wounded his former superior. Simmons ordered one of the employees at gunpoint to call the police. When the police arrived, Simmons just handed over his gun and surrendered without any resistance. So it's just so weird. This man just really wanted to kill people he didn't like, and then he was like, okay, I'm done. When the rampage was over, Simmons had killed 16 and injured four. Obviously, Simmons was given a psychiatric evaluation and was found that he was at least fit to stand trial. So May 12, 1988, Simmons went on for trial for the first murder of the stranger James David Chaffin and his acquaintance Kathy Kendrick. Simmons was found guilty and sentenced to death. Simmons spoke out at his sentencing and said under oath, I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and desire that absolutely no action by anyone be taken to appeal or in any way change my sentence. It is further requested that this sentence be carried out as soon as possible. Next, Simmons went on trial for the murder of his 14 family members and was obviously found guilty and again sentenced to lethal injection. Unlike most people on death row, Simmons never appealed his conviction one time. Simmons stated, to those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. 
It's so uncommon for death row inmates to refuse to appeal a death sentence that the trial court heard a hearing concerning Simmons' competence not to appeal. So basically heard to see if him not even appealing his conviction was him being incompetent to stand trial. So they concluded that his decision was known and intelligent. So he was there enough to say that he did not want to appeal. This part is a little, I don't know, weird because the death penalty is obviously like supposed to be considered the ultimate punishment. But I think based off what he's saying, he wants the death penalty. He wants to die. He doesn't want to have to sit there and like live out his sentence. He wants to be killed. So anyways, anyway, this became the subject of a U.S. Supreme Court case of Whitmore versus Arkansas. In the case of Whitmore versus Arkansas began because Arkansas law at the time didn't require appellate review of capital sentences. And Simmons had chose not to appeal or contest his conviction. And a fellow death row inmate named Jonas Whitmore filed the suit against Arkansas on behalf of himself and Simmons. Jonas had exhausted his appeals and was about to pursue a habeas claim in federal court. The writ of habeas corpus is a constitutional right. And in this case, it is the last ditch effort of Jonas. It's a civil action against the person holding the defendant to bring the person before the court to determine if everything about the person's imprisonment is lawful. Habeas corpus literally means bring the body, like bring the person being held before court. So Jonas Whitmore had attempted to force Simmons to appeal the case. So if you're wondering what Jonas is on death row for. Jonas is on death row for stabbing a 62-year-old woman and robbing her for $250 after she let him into her home and fed him milk and cookies. Basically, this case was brought by him because he wanted Simmons to appeal his case because he thought that there was a chance if the habeas appeal worked, Simmons got a new trial, that his murder wouldn't look as bad and they wouldn't be as harsh on him. Compared to Simmons' 16 murders, Jonas would probably get out of the death penalty. So he argued that he was harmed by Simmons not appealing, and in addition, Arkansas not mandating review of death penalty cases was a violation of the No Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. And the Supreme Court of the United States ruled against Jonas in the case, holding that Simmons always had the right to appeal, and that it did not violate the Cruel and Unusual Punishment for Simmons to not be forced to appeal. While Simmons was sitting on death row waiting to be executed, Simmons had to be separated into a private cell because the other prisoners were constantly trying to kill him. The other prisoners on death row believed, like Jonas, that Simmons was damaging their chances of beating their own sentences. But on May 31st, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton signed the execution warrant of Ronald Gene Simmons, and Simmons was executed by lethal injection on June 25th, 1990. None of Simmons' surviving family members would claim his body, and so he was buried in the Potter's Field in Lincoln County, Arkansas. And that is the case of Ronald Gene Simmons. I have to ask, have you guys watched the Netflix show The Watcher? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So I know, you have to watch it. But there's a character called John Graff, who is an Army veteran, who all of his family members, as they came home for the day, and laid them out on the floor, like in a row. But that character is based off a real-life case of John List, who in the 70s did the exact same thing. All veterans would kill their family members, like, as they came home for the day, like, from work, for school, and then just went on the run and disappeared. I'm telling you, it's a psychotic break or something. That's a very sad story, especially the wiping out of the family. Okay, so do you guys want to jump into overtime? 
Who wants to start this week? Holly, do you have any? Okay, obviously I do. Um, the four students killed. Can we talk about that? Everybody probably knew that that one was going to come up, but I've been watching a lot of TikToks on it. Okay. Do you have any and updates? Yeah. Well, I found a couple of things on TikTok that I was confused because I hadn't heard it in the news. And I was like, is this true? Or is someone just using this as like clickbait? Because there's some weird stuff. If you guys don't know, four students murdered in their home, in their bed, by the way, it's now been said murdered in their bed. And there was two students in the basement, two, two people living in the basement that had their door locked that were completely unharmed. So it was three girls, one, one guy that were, was killed. Stabbed to death. Yeah, I found it so weird it's in their bed. Like, how? How? Like, it's just so creepy to me. How? Now that um, you say bed, though, because the reports we all heard at first were obviously they were in the living room, or at least the bodies were in the living room. So if they were mm-hmm. in their beds, because I kept saying... There's no way that how could people not wake up, especially the other two roommates that were at the house at the time, if they were in their beds. Stabbing to death is a very long, painful way to go. I don't know if you guys have seen the like layout of the house, but it's three floors. There's two roommates, bedrooms on each floor. And the first floor is kind of like a basement. You can't see the first floor from like one side, but it's like a basement on the other So the first floor has like a separate entrance and apparently that's where the two roommates that were unharmed were staying in the first floor. Everybody was saying apparently it was kind of like a party house. So they had the keypad on the back door and the front door. And, you know, people were saying, well, they would have had to have the code. And they were like, well, it's a party house. So like a lot of people had the codes, but there was a picture taken by, I guess, probably just like paparazzi or something, but of them fingerprinting like a window, which obviously they would do, but now people are kind of saying online, just speculating that maybe if they came in through a window and then left a door open as they were leaving. You guys seen the photo, one of the paparazzi took a picture of the outside of the house and you can see blood dripping like onto the foundation of the house from inside. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's brutal. Keep us updated on that. Well, I have three stories this week. First off, just want to talk about our recent shooting that we've had since we last had our podcast. Unfortunately, this past weekend, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs had a shooting while a drag race was happening. It killed five people and injured 18 others. And like I said, again, this was Colorado Springs at the end of November. So Right now, they know they know who opened fire. It was a 22-year-old named Anderson Lee Aldrich, currently faces five murder charges, five charges of committing a bias-motivated crime, causing bodily injury, and many more other charges. So at the moment, though, the shooter is remaining in critical condition in the hospital. And I don't really want to talk about him too much, but I want to talk about how he ended up in the hospital because I think it was... Very, very impressive. So like I said, this was at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, and there was a drag show happening at the time of the shooting around 10 p.m. to midnight. We are huge supporters and advocates for them and love them a lot. So I can imagine it was a packed place. And there happened to be a 44-year-old man in there who occasionally dressed up in drag, but was there with his family that night. And the 44-year-old was a military veteran. And as soon as he heard the first fire of shots go out because it was an automated rifle, he immediately got up, ran, sprinted to the attacker, 
knocked him down, took the attacker's gun, and then started beating the hell out of the attacker with his own rifle. So the attacker, like I said, Anderson Lee Aldrich, is currently in critical condition in the hospital. We all hope that he can make a wonderful recovery so that he can then be sentenced and charged with his crimes, hopefully facing life in prison. We don't want this to happen anywhere. You know, we just watched this happen in Orlando last year or the year before with the deadly shooting. It's absolutely horrific. It makes people feel very unsafe, whether you're a part of that community or not, but Please know that here at Over My Dead Pod, we are big allies. If you ever need to talk to anybody, please do also seek help. It's mental health is super important and very prevalent in our lives those days. So that's the first story that I was going to cover. Shameless plug. We have added a resources page to our website, overmydeadpod.com. So my second story that I have today, just a very quick one. So One of the very famous women in our lifetime that we now know for crime, her name is Elizabeth Holmes, and she was just charged and convicted on her fraud charges. So Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to more than 11 years in prison on Friday following her conviction in January for defrauding investors while running company startup that she did, Thernos. It was a blood testing company. It failed. I just say that honestly, that makes me so upset that it was fake because I really thought no needles, finger prick, blood yeah. tests. You can find out if you have any, like literally everything wrong. It was with a you. genius idea. It was a genius yeah. idea. Know, it was yeah. Holly's dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. What a lot. So down. Judge Edward Davilia imposed a sentence of an 11 years and three months in prison. But then Elizabeth also has three years of home supervision after she's released. The sentence also includes $400 fine for each count of fraud and restitution is going to be sent at a later date. But here's another fun fact because I didn't know this one. Elizabeth was also found guilty this past January on more charges of defrauding investigators and will now face up to 20 more years in prison, as well as a fine of $2,500,000 for each count. My last one, very, very quick. Unfortunately for Bravo TV fans, fortunately for the people that they stole money from, Todd Chrisley and his wife were just sentenced to prison for bank fraud and tax evasions. Now, I will say I am a huge fan of the TV show Chrisley Knows Best, and I love their family. I love their kids. I think it's a great show. I am absolutely devastated that this is the turnout, you know, because this does happen to a lot of famous rich people. Some of them don't get away with it. There's another house star right now, John Shaw, going through the whole process as well. But I will say the Chrisleys, that sucks. But you shouldn't have done it. You shouldn't have done it. I'm so disappointed. Todd was sentenced to 12 years and Julie, his wife, was sentenced to seven years. So they have two minor children, Grayson and then another one who is actually their grandchild that they have custody of. Grayson was actually in badly injured in a car accident yesterday. And according to TMZ, is still in the hospital. So the day of his parents being sentenced. Wow, that's really, really sad. I hope that he's okay. So, and that is my part for this week. I have a little something to look forward to. It'll probably be out by now before this episode comes out. But on November 29th, Peacock is coming out with the little docuseries starring PC Anthony. <gasps> She's in it, apparently being interviewed. And we have a little glimpse. 
So you know, this is going to be juicy. She is such a straight face liar too. Oh my God. This is going to be good. Okay. Apparently in the stock series, she accuses her father, George Anthony, of staging Kaylee's death to make it appear as though Casey was at fault, all in an effort to hide what Casey alleges may have been sexual abuse at his hands. If you remember, she said during her trial that her dad, George, sexually abused her. According to the doc, Casey claimed that on June 16, 2018, she fell asleep with Kaylee on top of her, only to be awakened in the middle of the night by her father with Kaylee gone and George wondering where she was. Casey claims that Kaylee would never leave a room without informing her, so it didn't make sense for her to be gone. She then said that George eventually gave her Kaylee's dead body, which was icy and wet, and that he informed Casey that he was to blame. Casey allegedly confessed to taking Kaylee's body and vanished once more. Casey's theory is that George drowned Kaylee in their pool after suffocating her with a pillow to put her to sleep. You wouldn't think for a second while she was in prison, she would have said that if that was actually true. She has blamed so many people. This did not come up at trial. She did blame her dad for sexually abusing her at trial, but not once did she say that her dad killed And wouldn't you think that that would immediately... You know, I mean, it's going to be a good documentary, docuseries, whatever, but just because it's so ridiculous. I actually have a little fun fact. I was in Orlando at the time of the Casey Anthony verdict came out that she was acquitted. Um, It was pure chaos. I was also in Orlando at the time of George Zimmerman's verdict for the killing of Trayvon Martin. Okay, can you stop going to Orlando? First of all, stop going to Orlando. Stop going to places that are having cases happening because you are apparently the bad luck. (laughs) It's it's always Orlando. Don't go to Orlando. This is over my dead pod. We will see you next week. I believe it is Kate's case next week. Okay, yeah. We will see you then. This is Holly Spear. Kate Carter. Kylie Colwell. Bye. Bye. Bye.